Are you thankful for the worldwide outreach of issues, etc.? Please consider making a special Thanksgiving gift. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also contribute by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Supporters of same-sex marriage were very dedicated. They lost the ballot box 32 straight times before they prevailed. I don't agree with the outcome, but I do admire their persistence. I think pro-lifers should show similar persistence in the future. Cults are notoriously controlling and manipulative, and I think the woke movement really operates similarly because they seed such foundational lies, both anthropologically, what a human person is, but also spiritual lies. In our current culture in the United States of America, there seems to be an abundance of preoccupation on the state to the extent we see the other estates of family and church being neglected and in decline and deterioration. Once we surrender a objective truth outside of us in the scripture, an objective truth outside of us, I am baptized. I receive the body and blood of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in, with, and under the bread and the wine. When that goes by the wayside, then what I'm left with is my feelings. Wisconsin turkey producers love issues, etc. The second half of the Lord's Prayer deals with sin, temptation, evil, and even the evil one. That would seem to suggest that uh, in addition to the other many and great things that we have prayed for already in the Lord's Prayer, that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, in our lives... The reality of evil is of primary importance. Greetings and welcome back to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's part three of our series on the Lord's Prayer. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller joins us. He's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of a new catechetical resource called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Brian, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. When the 16th century reformer Martin Luther takes up the fifth petition and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in his large catechism, he starts with this phrase. He says, this part now applies to our poor, miserable life. What did he mean? You know, Luther was not an optimist. He had a kind of gloomy view of the world, and we're going to see it especially in these last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, also of ourselves, our flesh, and he knew the devil was around. This didn't mean he was grumpy or unhappy. He was, I can't imagine being around Luther and seeing his joy and his thankfulness, but this was all in what God gives, not in what we are. So his, his he had a theological optimism, a theological joy. He knew that God provided everything good. We bring to the table a bunch of misery, a bunch of sickness, weakness, confusion, doubt, despair, idolatry, sin. We have our miserable flesh. We live in a miserable world where they're suffering and dying. And we have the miserable devil and all the demons who are after us. And because of this, we pray. And there's so much to think about there that that our prayer is growing out of our desperate need. This is maybe the key thought that runs through Luther's mind when he's unfolding all the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. 
the first three, which have to do with the things of God, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, and the last four, which have to do with us and our need, our body, our daily bread, our trespasses and sins, our uh, temptation and temptability, our evil and the evil that surrounds us, so that we have this great need for help, but we have a great helper. And so as the Lord comes to us and he says, here is what you need from me, he's also reminding us of everything that he wants to give to us. So we have the the weakness of our bodies, that we are sick and die, that we get hungry, that we need shelter and food and all this. That has to do with the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. But we also have our sins and the sins of everyone around us and a conscience that's constantly being sullied by the sins that we commit and the sins committed against us. And living in the midst of a sinful world and being troubled by the devil means that we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So the condition in which we find ourselves is sin outside and inside. And so we need the Lord's help. And in this way, his help comes to us in the form of forgiveness. Why does it fall where it falls? Just to note that it begins with the conjunction and forgive us our trespasses. We've just prayed that God would give us something very mundane, daily bread. Now we turn to the greatest gift that God can give. Yeah, I was thinking about that, Todd, actually, just thinking about this conversation and thinking how if I would have ordered the petitions, I would have flipped them around. I would have put forgiveness first and then daily bread second and given a higher priority to the forgiveness of sins. But the Lord Jesus doesn't. He puts bread first and then forgiveness second. And I don't know what the wisdom of our Lord is there, but I suppose we recognize our own need first. Remember that humanity is a groaning thing, and we have these foundational groans. We have the belly groan, which tells us that we're hungry and we're thirsty and we're cold and that we need the stuff of this body. Suppose lust falls under the belly groan as well so that we have physical aches that, and we're grasping after things. And in a really foundational way, we need the Lord to tell us, hey, you are not to live a life that's just trying to take away this belly groan. Like Paul says, remember the heathens, their God is their belly. And that's just a beautiful, I mean, horrible, tragic, but wonderful way of describing American culture. Their God is their belly. We're just trying to take away that belly groan by whatever sort of satisfaction we can give. But there's other groans that we have. There's a loneliness, that's the groan of needing to be around people, which is a very interesting one. The Lord has intended us to be with people. And, and we've done a terrible job trying to address that groan by something like social media, which just makes it worse. But then there's the groan of the conscience. So the, the fourth petition is dealing with the belly groan, give us a stay our daily bread. The fifth petition is dealing with the conscience groan, that groaning in the conscience knows that something is wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong around me. I don't line up with good and bad. I know what good and bad is, and I know myself, and I know the two are skew from one another. But just like the belly groan, it's very imprecise. Like with, if my stomach is groaning at me, I don't know that I should eat vegetables. I could, you know, I could grab a bag of Twinkies and try to take away that belly groan. So the groan doesn't give me the specificity of how to solve the problem. I need, I need someone like a mom to tell me, eat your vegetables. So, so I know how to rightly address the belly groan. They're the same thing with a conscience groan. If I'm just left to myself trying to address that conscience groan, 
then I, like Adam and Eve, run for the fig leaves. I, I do something else. I argue for my own good. I start to make excuses for my own sin, and I start to accuse the people uh, sinning against me. It's, it's their fault. I mean, every world religion and every attempt at spirituality, apart from the blood of Jesus and the word of God, is a bad way of trying to address that belly groan, that pain of the conscience. And so the Lord comes along in the fifth petition and he says, here's how I want to take away that pain of the conscience. It's by the forgiveness of sins. And, and not just a, hey, I'm going to forget about the sins or, hey, I don't, don't worry about it. But it's the forgiveness of sins connected with the suffering of Jesus. It's the forgiveness of sins that's accomplished by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And so this fifth petition connects to the fourth petition in that the Lord is taking away these primal aches that every human has, but he's taking it away, not in the way that we think it should be taken away, but in the way that he knows it's to be taken away. And so just like we say, hey, give us a stay of daily bread, that's that's going to satisfy my hunger. Then he says, forgive us our trespasses. That's what's going to satisfy the conscience. He also says in study of this petition that this petition is intended to break our pride and keep us humble. How so? Well, it reminds us that we always need the forgiveness of sins. So there might be, I remember hearing, who's that famous uh, lady preacher who's, who grew up Lutheran, and then she later said, I'm not a poor, miserable sinner. Joyce Meyer. I don't confess. Yeah, Joyce Meyer. She, I'm not a poor, miserable sinner. We're not supposed to think of ourselves as sinners. This is part of the Joel Osteen business where the thoughts create the realities. And so you're not to think of yourself as a sinner, but as a, an angel, I guess, or someone who's, who's accomplished perfection or keeping the God's law. The petition, when Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses, he is telling us that we are always needing forgiveness. So when Jesus says, confess your sins, he's implying that we always have sins that need confessing. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, he's teaching us that we're always going to need trespasses that need forgiven. And so this idea that I can I can somehow achieve a life that doesn't need the blood of Jesus, that doesn't need the forgiveness of sins, that I can move past the gospel, which is the basic outline of American evangelicalism. The gospel gets you in, and then Moses keeps you going. And you can outgrow the gospel. You can outgrow the forgiveness of sins. You can outperform the need for the blood of Jesus. Not if you're praying every day, forgive us our trespasses. That brings you back to the fact, to the fundamental fact, that you are a trespasser that you are a lawbreaker, that you carry around sin inside your own sinful flesh, and that you live in the world, and that you have the devil hounding you. So all three of these realities, the world, the flesh, and the devil, remind us that we need the Lord's mercy in the form of forgiveness, and that we need that all the time. There's never going to be a time, Luther says it like this, let no one think that as long as we live here, he can reach such a position that he will not need such forgiveness. In short, if God does not forgive without ceasing, we are lost. So that the unceasing mercy and forgiveness of God is not just daily, it's a constant reality for every person who's waiting for the Lord's return. Let's deal with the second part of that petition, which Luther refers to as a sign that's been attached to the petition as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's amazing, isn't it? Because this, of all the things that trouble people in the Lord's Prayer, I think this little phrase is where I get the most questions as a pastor. And it mostly is in the form of, we know our own hearts, and we know how hard it is for us to forgive the sins committed against us. 
And we feel that burden and we wonder if that means that the Lord will withhold his forgiveness. We read the, the petition like this, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's like, Lord, give me your forgiveness in so much as I also give that forgiveness to others. And we make our own forgiving of other people the primary thing, almost like the trigger, like I'll go forgive someone and that'll give me access to the Lord's forgiveness. It's really the other way around. And this can be shown by the words of Jesus, especially, who follows up the Lord's prayer by doubling down on this petition in, in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you, etc. So Jesus doubles down on that and then again tells the parable to explain what this means with the parable of the unforgiving steward. Now, important to remember a couple of things. Number one, that not only are we sinners, but we are also sinned against. So not only are we hurting other people by our breaking of God's law, offending God and offending our neighbor, as well as harming ourselves, that we are hurting other people by our sins, but that we are also hurt by other people's sins. So we live in this life as sinners and as sinned against. And it's probably pretty good to get our heads around that as soon as we can, because we like to think of ourselves either that we're not sinners, we're just sinned against, or once we come into the church, we we really hyper-focus on the sins that we commit, which is right. We don't really know what to do with the sins committed against us. We, we almost don't think about it. And in that way, we excuse or forget about our own anger, our own sense of pride or whatever when we're hurt or harmed. So that Jesus wants to deal with us not only as sinners, but also as those who have been sinned against. And so we are set in this life as those who are forgiven, and then based on that forgiveness, to forgive others. So the parable of the unforgiving servant goes like this. There was a king and a servant who owed how many? 10,000 talents. That's 10,000 years wage. So just if you want to thank you, think of your year's wage for a bit and then add to that four zeros on the end. I mean, this is an unpayable debt. The king summons him in there, says, all right, it's time to pay your debt. And the man begs for more time. It's important for us to notice that he does not ask for forgiveness. He asks for time so that he and his family wouldn't be thrown into, into prison. And the king does not give him what he asks for. Instead of giving him more time and saying, get out there and hustle and pay me back, he says, well, I'm going to write it off. I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to forgive you the debt. And as my friend, Pastor Melius loves to point out, someone's got to pay that. It can't just, it is the, the king who's going to suffer the loss. That's what, that's what the cross is about. The king suffers the loss that the servant should suffer. Jesus endures the wrath of God that should be ours. So the king suffers the loss and he forgives the servant and he goes out there and he leaves and he should be so full of joy at his own forgiveness that he should be looking for an opportunity to tell everyone, not only that he's forgiven, but how good the king is who has forgiven him. But instead, he leaves the king's presence and he goes and he finds someone who owed him a thousand denarii. It's not an insignificant amount, but it's nothing compared to what he owed. And instead of, and, and he goes and he says, hey, pay me what you owe. Same thing the king said. The, this little the fellow servant says to this guy, the same thing, give me more time. And he not only refuses to give him more time, he do, doesn't forgive him or give him more time. He throws him in jail. He's, he's completely unmerciful. It's as if, and, and here's, I think, the best way to think about this. It's as if he didn't hear what the king said. It's as if he heard the king say, all right, you've got two weeks. 
And if the king would have said, you've got two weeks to pay me back, then this guy strangling the other guy, demanding justice would have been the right thing to do. It would have been the good thing to do. It would have made the king proud. Look at how hard he's working to get the money to pay me back. But the king didn't say, all right, you have two weeks, pay me back. God does not say to us, I'm going to give you some help to try harder. He forgives us. And understanding that forgiveness sets us in the world to be those who forgive the people that sin against us. This is hard, but very important, is that the Christian is a forgiver, just as the Christian is forgiven. And Luther comes to this petition and says, this comes to us as a sign that when by the Holy Spirit, this miracle is worked in our own hearts, that we begin to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father, who does not hold our sins against us, but forgives us. And we begin to forgive those who sin against us. It becomes a sign to comfort us that we belong to Jesus. He says it like this. If you forgive, then you have this consolation and assurance that you are forgiven in heaven. Not on account of your forgiving, for God forgives freely and without condition, out of pure grace, because he is so promised, as the gospel teaches, but in order that he may set up this for our confirmation and assurance for a sign alongside the promises. Luther even compares this sign to the sign of baptism and to the sign of the Lord's Supper. It's an indication that the Holy Spirit has captured our heart with a free forgiveness of our sins, and we rejoice in that even with those who have sinned against us. How wonderful. It's the third part of our series on the Lord's Prayer with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller. He's author of a new catechetical resource called Lord to Teach Us to Pray. When we come back to sixth petition, lead us not into temptation. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Two millennia ago, Pilate uttered one of the most profound questions that we still ask in the modern era. What is truth? Many today would say that truth, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder, or perhaps in the heart. But that's not what truth is for the Christian people of God. Truth is found in Christ alone. To learn more about the Lutheran view of truth, pick up the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. For sinners only, you're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. In this wonderful month of thankfulness, we thought it would be a great time to say a huge thank you to Pastor Todd Wilkin, Jeff and their team. For almost 10 years, they have opened their broadcasts to Ad Crucem and allowed us to share our products with their listeners. Thank you to Issues Etc. And thank you, dear listeners, 
for all your support and patronage over these years. God bless you from Ad Crucem. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer, part three of a series with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Brian, we come to the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation. What does it mean? It's an important one because, again, as, as Luther even began the fifth petition, it's going to apply here also to the sixth and to the seventh, is that we're surrounded by trouble. And that trouble is inside of us in the form of the flesh. It's outside of us in the form of the world. And it's all around us in the form of the devil and the demons. We're surrounded by all of this great difficulty. And in this petition, we're praying that the Lord would help us to fight against this, that he would give us the strength, as Luther says here, to resist the temptation, not to be taken away from it or removed from it. That's probably what we pray for in the last petition, deliver us from evil, when the Lord will finally lead us out of this troubled world to stand before him in heaven. We pray for that. But in this way, we're recognizing that we're in the in the midst of all of this trouble and that the Lord would help us to fight against it, to do spiritual warfare. And Luther will go on to kind of unfold the, the three different shapes of temptation. And I think really interestingly, talk about how that temptation comes to each of us in a different way. He says, there is first the flesh. We dwell and carry the old Adam about our neck who exerts himself and entices us daily to inchastity, laziness, gluttony, drunkenness, avarice, deception, to defraud our neighbor, overcharge him, in short, all manner of evil lusts. That's the flesh. Next comes the world, which offends us in word and deed and impels us to anger and impatience. In short, there's nothing but hatred and envy, enmity, violence, wrong, unfaithfulness, vengeance, cursing, etc., etc. And then comes the devil, third inciting and provoking in all directions, especially agitating in matters that concern the conscience and spiritual affairs, namely to induce us to despise and disregard both the word and the works of God, to tear us away from faith, hope, and love, to bring us to misbelief, false security, obduracy, or on the other hand, to despair or denial of God, and so forth. So we fight against the flesh, which impels us to sin against others. We fight against the world, which is always sinning against us. And we fight against the devil who's pressing us in both ways, trying to surround us and drown us in all of this misery. Talk a little bit about the fact that we have, as the book of Hebrews says, a Savior who is in every way tempted as we are yet without sin. So he's able to sympathize with us as a high priest. How should we understand our temptations against which we pray here and those that Christ endured for us? Yeah, Hebrews does not highlight the difference between Jesus' temptation and our temptation, although we might speak of it just briefly. And that is the temptation that Jesus endures comes from from outside. He does not have an ally. He does not have a sinful flesh. He is not burdened with concupiscence, that is, the inclination to sin, the desire to do the wrong thing, the the wanting to disobey God, the, the pressure that all of us feel in our flesh of the Ten Commandments being a constraining thing. And how terrible is that? That the Ten Commandments are like a shirt or a pair of pants that are like five sizes too small for the flesh. It just it it feels like it's always squeezing us. And so we we are by our own sinful flesh pressing against the commandments as if the commandments are the problem and not our sinful flesh. That's the the state that we find ourselves in. Jesus did not have a sinful flesh. He was in the world and he was tempted by the devil. And so he was able to endure temptation in every way 
like we do. And Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. In some ways, I think people come to this and say, well, look, Jesus couldn't have sinned. It was impossible for him to sin. So he can't possibly know what temptation is like. But I think it might be actually worse for Jesus because he could endure temptation to an even more severe degree that we could. Just imagine this if like you're being tempted to anger because you're on a road trip with your younger brother and he is constantly uh, you know annoying you, poking you, putting his hand on the wrong side of the seat. He's trying to provoke you to anger and it's building up and you're getting angrier and angrier and you're angry and you're seeing more and more red until finally you can't resist it and you punch him in the face. So you, you reached a certain point and it just, you couldn't endure anymore and you sinned. You fell for the temptation. Well, Jesus could endure that more than anybody. He, the temptation would get more and more and more and more severe because he would never punch someone in the face. And so the temptation that he endures is in a, in a profound way more painful than the temptation that we endure because the temptation never wins. The pressure never lets off. It's all the way to the max in every way. So that Jesus endures temptation like we do, and yet he did it without sin. So that Jesus never fell. Uh, he never sinned. He never committed iniquity in anything that he thought or said or did or failed to do. In every way, he was obedient to God's law and the vocations that were that were given to him. And he has that, what we call his active obedience, everything he did, and his passive obedience in his suffering and endurance, he has all that to give to us in the great exchange. But Hebrews wants us to know that the incarnation that the Lord took on our flesh and blood, our humanity, meant that he could taste temptation, and the result is he can sympathize with us. He knows the difficulty of living in this fallen world. In fact, he knows it better than we know it. It's amazing to think about. Jesus knows what it is to be a sinner more than we sinners know what it is to be a sinner because, because he could feel the, the severity of it. Another way to think about it is that, you know, Jesus, he knows what it is to be apart from sin, apart from death, apart from weakness, apart from sin, and yet he also knows what it is to be in those things. It's so hard for us to imagine what it'll be like to not be temptable, what it'll be like to not want to sin, what it'll be like we're blind and deaf to the glory of God and the presence and songs of the angels. What it'll be like to hear those, the angels sing, and to see the glory of God. Jesus knew what all those things were like, and then he lost them in the incarnation, in enduring our own weakness and sin. And so Jesus is able to sympathize with us. And this sets up the distinction that Luther's talking about here, but between feeling the temptation and falling or consenting for the temptation. It's one thing to feel it, to feel the pressure towards lust, for example, in the flesh, towards pride or despair, according to the world, towards unbelief as we're tempted by the devil and despair of God's grace and so forth. It's one thing to feel it. It's another thing to consent to it. And so this prayer is given to us to fight against temptation, to fight against the weakness of the flesh and the evils of the world and the devil, and to call on the Lord to help us in the midst of all of this trouble. We are studying the Lord's Prayer, part three of a series with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller. When we come back, 
Luther says that God actually gives us strength and power against these temptations. We'll find out what that means next. How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. As we prepare to gather with loved ones this Thanksgiving and thank God for the blessings He has provided, we want to give thanks for all who support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries. Hi, my name is Rahima Kavuga, Director of Synod Relations at Lutheran Church Extension Fund. At LCEF, we believe in nurturing the growth of LCMS ministries, ensuring they have resources they need to thrive. And we can't do it without our investors, partners, and employees. From all of us at LCEF, thank you and happy Thanksgiving. We're Mount Calvary Lutheran Church of the Missouri Synod, located in Brady, the heart of Texas, the closest city to the center of our great state. We're a confessional, traditional, liturgical, sacramental, faithful congregation. We welcome you to Sunday School, Bible Study, and Divine Service with every Sunday Communion. You'll find us on the west side of town on Highway 87, next to the Brady Civic Center Golf Course and Cemetery. Mount Calvary Lutheran Church, Brady, Texas, where Christ is at the heart. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Geeshan. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in an advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry. It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer in our series with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He's author of a new catechetical resource called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. So, Brian... At the end of Luther's explanation there in the large catechism for this particular petition, he is one to point out that God provides strength and power against temptation. By ourselves, we're powerless, but God provides that strength. Talk about that. And here the key thing that I always want to highlight as a pastor 
is where do I feel the temptation coming? Luther says, such feeling, the feeling of temptation, as long as it is against our will and we would rather be rid of it, can harm no one. So that do I, do I feel like the temptation to sin is what I want or I don't want? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, the good that I would, I don't, and the evil that I won't, I do, and who will deliver me from this body of flesh? There's this battle, and it's the battle between the spirit and the flesh. It's between the sinful nature that we inherit from Adam and the new man, which is created in us through baptism and nurtured by the word and sacraments. So here, here the flesh side wants to sin, and the spirit side wants to do what's right. And the question is, what side am I on? If I'm on the flesh side, then I feel the spirit and the call to love and serve God and the neighbor as pressure to, to do something I don't want to do. If I'm on the spirit side of things, then I feel the flesh and the temptation to sin and reject God. I feel that as pressure to do the thing that I don't want to do. And what side of that battle is, is the me? Now, Paul, when Paul talks about it, the me is on the spirit side mostly, although he'll identify partially with the flesh, but, but mostly it's on the spirit side, so that the temptation comes to me as something that disgusts me, that troubles me. I see my own greed, my own selfishness, my own pride, my own lust, my own bitterness, my own anger, my own rebellion. I see all of these things as something that I don't want, Ugh, that I can't wait to be free from all these things in the resurrection to where even my desires will be totally sanctified. When I'm on that side of the battle, I'm safe. If I'm on the other side and I feel like, well, God is the one who doesn't want me to do what I want to do, and I'm identifying with the sinful flight, now I'm really in trouble. So that we're always on the side of the Spirit, and the Spirit has its life in the Word of God, in the Spirit of God, in the life that God gives to us. And so we are given by God this Spirit, which is the enlivening of our own spirit. We're given His Holy Spirit to fight against the flesh, and we are on that side of things. We are on the spirit side of things. And so we're not relying on ourselves. We're not relying on our own strength. We're not relying on our own wisdom, but we're relying on what the Lord gives. And it's one of the reasons, well, it's it's the reason that the Lord has taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Go into a little bit more detail about how, and this is a very pastoral point on the part of Luther, when he says to feel temptation is different from consenting or yielding to it. He continues after he says that we must all feel it, although not in the same manner. And here I think it is a really fascinating point where Luther talks about how temptation is different for us in different stages of life and in different vocations. So that a young person suffers especially from the sins of the flesh. He says after that, we attained a middle life or old age and from the world. And those who are occupied with spiritual matters strong Christians, we feel the temptation coming from the devil. So that we're in different stages of life, we're tempted in different ways. Different vocations have different temptations. Different people with different personalities have different temptations. We know that men and women are tempted in different ways. Old and young are tempted in different ways. We're all tempted, but it comes to us in different ways. And I remember one pastor told me, every one of us has our sinful flesh, our concupiscence, our desire to sin is all individually bent and twisted so that we all have our own temptations. And I think the devil, as a student of human nature, sees it. He knows each person's kind of unique temptation and, and difficulty. Now, in this world, we are set to fight against these things. So that we know that we're always going to be feeling the temptation, sometimes much more intensely than at other times. And it's always curious to me, too, to see how 
and when people particularly struggle with particular temptations. Times of day are different for people. Different circumstances are different. Some people have a temptation that shows up when they're with other people, the temptation to pride or, or anger. Other people have temptation that shows up when they're by themselves. So that we're always going to be fighting against the temptation to sin and to disobey God and his word and his wisdom. But to feel it and to consent to it are totally different. It goes back to what we were talking about before, is that if I want to be safe from temptation, I always want to see temptation as not mine, or insofar as it is mine, that I become troubled by it. In a way here, part of our sanctification is the proper cultivation of disgust, and that I become disgusted with my own sinful nature, with my own weaknesses, with my own temptations. I'm disgusted with my short temper. I'm disgusted with my lust or with my bitterness. I'm disgusted with my own pride and my conceit or even with my despair or whatever it is. That we understand that our own sinful flesh is in fact our enemy. Then that means that we're not fighting against God, but we're fighting with God. If I'm on the spirit side of the flesh spirit battle, then I'm not fighting against the Lord and his commandments. I'm fighting with the Lord and his commandments. And I can be thankful when the Lord says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And my lazy flesh doesn't want to go to church. But I know that the Lord's word is in fact driving me there for my own good and for my own joy. And so I I rejoice that the Lord has given me that command because it, the word, is fighting against my own sinful flesh, which I hate. It's one of the dangers of new Lutheranism I think we've talked about this a couple times, Todd, but I'm starting to get a little more clear on this, that that our new Lutherans want us to identify with our flesh and not with the spirit. So that the me is the sinful part. The me is the rebellious, angry, lustful, lying, bitter, discontent part. That when I say I'm a poor, miserable sinner, it's, it's more than just recognizing that I bear in this body my sinful flesh. But no, I am that flesh that rails against the gifts of God. No, the gospel, and Paul does this really beautifully in Romans 7. Paul is putting us on the spirit side of things, that we're the new man and we're putting off the flesh and we're putting on the new man. We're putting off the the sins of the flesh and we're putting on the fruits of the spirit. And this putting off and putting on is this daily life of repentance. And that's part of this leading us not into temptation, that I can recognize this thing that my sinful flesh wants to do, ugh, it's just, Lord, forgive me for even wanting, liking that thing, desiring that thing, ugh, just get rid, and, and th- to know that the Lord, God be praised, is going to rescue us in the resurrection. Maybe a, a quick way to check it as a pastor is say, are we looking forward to the day when our flesh and all the sinful desires of the flesh will finally be gone? Are we looking forward to that day or are we going to be sad about that day because we kind of like our sinful nature? Well, we have to always be longing for that day when when the flesh will be put off and we'll be totally made new. He finally ends with this phrase or this uh, counsel. If you try to help yourself by your own thoughts and counsel, you will only make matters worth and give the devil more space for he has a serpent's head. If it finds an opening into which it can slip, the whole body will follow without stopping. But prayer can prevent him and drive him back. What are your thoughts? Yeah, how wonderful. But you read that like an audio book, Todd. That was good. It's great that Jesus is teaching us this wisdom, lead us not into temptation, as he's teaching us prayer. In other words, Jesus is not just giving a lecture on human nature. He's not just giving a lecture on how to live in this life. 
He's not just outlining the problems that we're going to face. He is teaching us those things, but he's teaching them in the context of pray like this. In other words, it's going to be tough, but that's why you need to pray. And I hear your prayers and answer them. Other times he'll say, in this world, you will have trouble, but be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. So sometimes he'll just tell us how it's going to be, but here he's telling us how it's going to be as he's teaching us to pray for it. And so it's prayer that prevents the devil and drives him back so that this is battle training. This is what it means to be a Christian. We're going to be in the midst of all this trouble, but that's precisely why we're praying that the Lord would deliver us from these things. And and so we pray in the confidence that he's He's going to help. So it, again, to quote Paul in, in Romans 7, when he goes through all these things, ah, who can deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. In other words, as I consider how bad things are in my flesh and in the world and with the devil, I'm tempted to just kind of throw my hands up in despair, but I'm not allowed to do that because I'm praying. And I know if I'm praying, and in fact, if I'm praying the things that the Lord wants me to pray, then he's going to hear that prayer and he's going to answer them. And so our hope is not in our own devices, not in our own schemes or plans. It's not up to us to figure out how to how to manage the temptations that come to us. That might have been a monastic idea, but it failed miserably. It goes the other way around. It, in fact, aggravates the world and the flesh so that we are set up to fight against temptation with the power of the Lord's word and with the confidence that he hears and answers our prayers. Pastor Brian Wolf-Miller is our guest. We will get to the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer, Deliver Us From Evil, in our series on the Lord's Prayer, Part 3, next. Are you thankful for the worldwide outreach of issues, etc.? Please consider making a special Thanksgiving gift. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also contribute by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the Lord's Prayer. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. He is pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. St. Paul Lutheran in Austin is an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Most confessional Lutheran churches are preparing their budgets for 2024. Consider adding the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. to your congregation's mission or advertising budget. Find out about the benefits of becoming an Issues Etc. church sponsor on the support donate page at issuesetc.org, look for a one-page informational flyer. Brian, the seventh petition, deliver us from evil. How does this really serve as a summary of the entire prayer? 
Yeah. The evil is all around us, in us, in our flesh, around us in the world, surrounding us in the devil and the demons. And and we cannot deliver ourselves. That's the whole point. We're in this great, desperate need, but we have, God be praised, a deliverer. This is such a beautiful title that Jesus has for himself. It's, I mean, Savior, Redeemer, all of this is the deliverer, the one who rescues us, the one who takes us out of all of this trouble. And he does it by the cross, and he does it by his resurrection, and he does it by our death, and he does it by his return on the last day, and the raising up of all the dead, and the gathering all the sheep to him. This is his work of deliverance. He does it through the Holy Spirit, which comes through the word. And so he is the one who delivers us from every evil of body and soul. He is the rescuer. And it focuses now at the end, it focuses right in on our problems. So just like the forgiveness of sins reminds us that we're sinners, just like lead us not into temptation reminds us that we're tempted. Here, deliver us from evil reminds us that we're surrounded by evil. So all of them preach the law in the sense that I'm not allowed to say I'm not without sin. I'm not allowed to say I'm not without temptation. I'm not allowed to say that I'm not without evil. It rightly diagnoses the trouble, again, inside and outside of our troubled life. But then it also gives the gospel in the word deliver. So he, the Lord is our forgiver, according to the fifth petition. He is our leader, according to the sixth petition. And he is our deliverer, according to the seventh petition. It's just exactly what he wants to be. So I have no hope of delivering myself, but that's okay because I already have a deliverer, the Lord Jesus, who will deliver us from all of the troubles that surround us, especially the devil who's summarized in this. We say delivers from evil as an abstraction, which is fine, but maybe even better, Luther notes delivers from the evil one, from the malevolent one. It hones in on the devil and his attack. And so he becomes the, the embodiment of all evil, but Jesus becomes the the, the embodiment of all deliverance and rescue. Let's talk about evil or evil one, because we've talked here a lot about the devil. It's interesting how much the devil figures into the Lord's Prayer. Do we have to make a choice there? Evil in a, in a kind of a big generic sense, which is certainly in view, and the evil one, which is using all those circumstances to rob us of faith. No, I don't think so. I mean, I was trying to work this out in the second, third book I was writing about, which is A Martyr's Faith in a Faithless World, and thinking about the parable of the sower, where the where the sower sows the seed, and, it, and there's three troubles of the seed. And the first is the birds, and then the weeds, and then the stones, or the sun, I suppose. But really, it's the shallow roots is the problem there. And so the first is the devil who comes along and snatches up the word. But then when we get into the weeds, that's the flesh, but it's not like the devil's absent there. Or the world, which comes and and scorches uh, through persecution and trouble, but it's not like the devil's not there either. So that when Jesus says, deliver us from the evil one, that's probably the better translation of the text, at least as we have it in the Greek from Matthew and from Luke, deliver us from the evil one. That doesn't mean that it would exclude the the world and the flesh. No, in fact, the devil is the the energy behind all of these things. And it's it's pretty amazing to think that the world is an ally to the devil and that our own sinful flesh is an ally to the devil. So these three things are always working together to destroy everything good that God has given, has instituted and set up. So it's it's not a bad thing when you're praying the Lord's Prayer to think, deliver us from evil, and then next time deliver us from the evil one, that, that it's less abstract and, and more concrete because the devil is concrete evil. And the more concretely we can think about these things, I'd say the better but it encompasses every evil of body and soul, 
life and property. Every, it, it means every, in some ways, evil is the anti-petition. So that in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we know what's good, God's name and God's kingdom and God's will and God's mercy and God's provision and God's wisdom and God's rescue. These are what's good. And the devil is the opposite of all of those things. He is the destroyer of all of those things. He lies to destroy God's truth. He kills to destroy God's gifts. This is evil embodied, and it's probably a great way to think about it. In fact, I was thinking about, and this is, again, Luther, but probably from Genesis, when he was talking about the twofold death that happens after the fall. So God had threatened, I suppose, to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of it, dying you will die. So there's a double death, and that death is a spiritual death and a physical death. So we can say it like this, uh, sin is what death looks like in the spirit, in the soul, and death is what sin looks like in the body. So they are the same thing. When this punishment shows up in the body, it looks like death. When it shows up in the conscience, it looks like sin. It's the same thing. And the devil is that which encapsulates that rebellion and the results of that rebellion. He says, unless God preserved us, we would be not be safe from this enemy, even for an hour. Again, you're tempted to think that Luther is engaging in some kind of hyperbole, but isn't this exactly what Scripture teaches? Yeah. The devil's there, and, and he's shooting his fiery darts. This is um, how Paul talks about the devil in Ephesians 6 when he's describing spiritual warfare, and he's, he has these fiery darts. We don't see them. We feel them when, they, when one of them lands. We feel it, but it's constantly... Uh, we're constantly being assaulted by the devil, and we, ha we have to believe that by faith. The scene that I'm always reminded of is one of the Toy Story movies, probably like Toy Story 17 or something, where the toys, if the, the movie's about these kind of animated toys that are alive, and they're, they're trying to cross the road, and so they all get in these traffic cones, and they're going across traffic, and they make all these funny traffic patterns, and everything's crashing all around them, swerving to miss them, and this big pipe almost crushes them. And they have no idea. They just run across the street, and they think, oh, that was easy. They have no idea how close they were to being utterly obliterated so many times. And, they, and this, this is kind of how it is with us and the fiery darts of the devil. I mean, we're, we're like walking blind through traffic, and we have no idea how close we are to just being struck to the heart by one of these fiery darts of that the devil is shooting at us and trying to destroy us. So we constantly have to be protected by these things, by the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, doused in the promises of holy baptism. This is the picture that we have that we're constantly being assaulted and we stand only because the Lord helps us to stand. One of my diagnoses that I use when I read theologians, so I like to ask, how often do they write about the devil? Or when I listen to sermons, I say, how often does this preacher mention the devil? Because the reality of the devil and the demons and the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged runs all the way through the scriptures, and it runs all the way through the Orthodox theologians. And Luther grabs a hold of it. I mean, it'd be difficult to find a page of a Luther sermon that doesn't mention the devil as our arch enemy. And yet, one of the marks of modern theology is that there's hardly any mention of the devil at all. And so it's very good to be reminded that Luther reminds us in this petition and in all the petitions that every petition for God's blessing is a petition against the devil's fighting against God's blessing. That for God's kingdom to come, the devil's kingdom is going to be destroyed. For God to provide us with daily bread, 
the devil's plots to steal even the crumbs is going to be destroyed. For God to forgive our sins, the devil's attempts to give us a bad conscience have to be stopped. For the Lord to lead us from temptation and deliver us from evil, it means the devil and all his plots and devices, all of these have to be thwarted. For God's will to be done, it means the will of the world, the flesh, and most especially the devil is not going to get done. And so all the petitions, but especially this last one, remind us of that. Finally, with only a minute, your thoughts on the word, amen. It's an old Hebrew word. It means founded. It's probably, if I have this right, it's one of the words they would use as a construction word for the pillar that kind of gets down to bedrock so the house won't collapse. And when we say amen, we're saying, yes, let it be so. And this is so great. When Jesus says amen, he says it at the beginning. Amen, amen, I say to you. In other words, perk up, guys. You pay attention to this. I'm, I'm giving you a foundational truth. We say amen at the end. So yes, yes, it shall be so. And not because of anything in ourselves. The very fact that we're praying is an admission that we can't do anything ourselves. No, we are trusting in the Lord who has given us these petitions, who teaches us all the things that we need, and who has promised to be all the things that we're asking for in this prayer. And with that confidence, we pray, I think, louder than with any other prayer. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, when we're giving back to the Lord Jesus the words that he has given to us and put in our mouths and hearts, when we're giving it back to him, we say, Amen. Let it be so. We know that you are all of these things for me, for my family, for my neighbors, for the people I'm praying, for all of your children. You are all of these things. So be these things now for us. And we finish our prayer, like James says, not doubting like a boat tossed in the sea, but confidence built on the promises of God through the Word and the Spirit, who teaches us to pray. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of a new catechetical resource called Lord Teach Us to Pray. You'll find a link to it on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Brian, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to all the listeners. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Israel going into exile in 2 Kings chapter 17. And we'll respond to your email and the Issues Etc. comment line. Every petition of the Lord's Prayer is a promise, a promise that Jesus, the one who gave us that prayer to pray, promises to keep. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234, Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. 
Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to 8th grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org.